All right, folks. We reached out to you in the FrenzyCon forum and asked what you want us to talk about on this next episode. And you gave us some feedback. So I've taken what you've given us and kind of put into words the undercurrent of what you were saying. Basically, President Obama, as we all know, is secretly a Muslim. This leads to his anti-pork sentiments and drive his wife, Michelle, to push health foods on us against our will. Now this would mean no more bacon. The end game is such. Bacon, as we also all know, is the most effective treatment for all venereal diseases, which were all created by the Illuminati as a form of population control. Bacon also foils the microtransmitters present in all vaccinations. So to put an end to bacon is to put an end to freedom. Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to what is the second episode of Hype or Die. Um, it is our podcast, as you know, it's by Five Iron Frenzy freaks for fans of Five Iron Frenzy, people who hate Five Iron Frenzy, everyone seems to hate them, even though they love them. And we're back. My name is Joshua Huggins. I am from Albuquerque, New Mexico, although I never call myself Joshua. That sounds really stupid. Uh, I'm Mark, uh, and I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. I always call myself Mark. Uh, even when I'm talking about myself, I, I Mark refers to himself in the third person. It's funny because like I I refer to myself as Josh. No one in the world calls me Joshua, and almost everyone calls me Huggins. And so like on my other podcast, I always refer to myself as Huggins, and everyone knows me as that. But apparently, I'm going with Joshua Huggins on this one. I mean, we can call you Huggins. That's fine. I, I let's go with Huggins. It's all right. It's cuter. Okay, so today on the show, uh, we're getting into a little bit about some touchy subjects, a little bit about uh, some racism. Uh, but that's the, that's the beauty of Five Iron is that they do that so beautifully. And so why, why not? Let's try our hand at it, I guess. I think that's kind of what it inspired us, especially with what's going on like in Baltimore and the riots and stuff. We were talking about the song Riot Gear. And actually, we've got a special guest today. But he even mentioned white people burning cop cars and stuff like that after sporting events, uh, which oh, is yeah. funny because we were talking about Riot Gear earlier. And then also, you know, songs like recent songs like Zen and the Art of Xenophobia mm -hmm. and uh, all the songs about, you know, Native American genocides. Basically, like it is something that has has. Uh, you know, been presented to fans over and over is like, Hey, this is something we care about. And a lot of us care about it too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, and that's, that's one reason. And we, I think we touched on it a little bit last episode, but that's one reason I've always loved five iron is that things that are on the forefront, um, for a lot of people are not on the forefront. I can't talk are not on the forefront for a lot of Christians. And you find that it's almost taboo to talk about them and they talked about them and it came across as really, um, really insane and intense that they would even bring up these subjects, but they're, they're human subjects and, and these are human people. So it's, it's, it's so phony not to talk about it. So that's why I love that five iron talked about them and a lot of their songs are really scathing and they're not afraid to really uh, dig in when they need to. And that's, that's something you don't find a lot for sure. Okay. Well, you know, um, since we've got this great interview coming up, I'd like to kind of lead into it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I want to ask you a question, Huggins. Go for it. Growing up, did you listen to a lot of uh, Adventures in Odyssey? You have no idea. Yeah, I, I did, but not a lot of it. I had one tape, and that's all I watched. And it's because my, oh, pa my parents encouraged me. Did you get it from a Chick-fil-A? Dude, I have no idea. I just remember they rode a hot air. <laughs> they were in a hot air balloon, and one of them ate like a sandwich or a banana, and that's literally all I remember. But I remember like it was burned into my brain as a kid. Okay, well, so it was. You know, a lot of you are gonna know. A lot of fans are gonna know. If you've grown up in Christian culture, you probably grew up with Adventures in Odyssey. It's an audio drama. Um, came out every week on the radio. It's still going strong. It's actually like, in terms of audio production, which is something that I, I care a lot about. It is one of the most phenomenal audio dramas ever made. Like they really do a great job and they did some video in the, in the nineties and stuff like that. But the audio is really where it's at. Like their, their Foley room is pretty incredible. Like anyway, I'm going to geek out over it. <laughs> so like if, if a lot of you grew up with it, um, you probably remember a character by the name of Jimmy Barkley. Well, we had a special guest today. It's actually the voice actor, Dave Griffin, uh, or Jave Griffin, as he goes by professionally, which is interesting. We got him onto the show today to talk about uh, his experiences with, um, with racism, and not that he was the target, 
but he kind of learned to recognize his own prejudice. The reason I decided to get him on is because uh, he posted something on Facebook. It, it, it struck me as a really good story. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read that to you right now. Do you mind, Huggins? Go for it. Okay, so this one's kind of long. Uh, he's going to give us a TLDR version when he actually talks. But So what he says, I can't definitively recall the moment I finally acknowledged the totality of my ignorant prejudice towards the black community. It happened slowly over several years, and there was no watershed moment. Rather, it was the sum of thousands of hours of conversations with a neighbor and friend who truly opened my eyes to the experience of a world that I had not grown up in. Simply stated, I grew up in a world of privilege. White, suburban, educated parents with good jobs, a family of history of college graduates and doctors and lawyers, mayors, company owners, professors, and artists. My upbringing consisted of family vacations to a family cottage on a lake, and we never went hungry. The lights were always on, and I lived in a protective bubble where the problems of poverty and racism were only seen on TV, never in my neighborhood. That changed as I entered adulthood, and health issues led me down a road of poverty. It ain't easy being sick in America. Poverty gave me an education that privilege never could, and softened a hardened, read ignorant heart. I moved into an economically disadvantaged neighborhood and for the first time in my life found myself to be a minority white guy in a culture of blacks, Hispanics, immigrants, and every other group clinging to the dangling bottom rung of a decaying economic and social ladder. There was one particular friendship that emerged among all of my new neighbors and friends that opened my eyes. Blue was a hardcore former gangster, mother addicted to crack and died young, father lived a mile away and never had anything to do with his son. My friend grew up in a very impoverished and violent community where the walk to school in the morning was a crapshoot. Moving from apartment to sofa to car and over again, he fed and clothed himself and his younger sister by stealing. Otherwise, he would have starved and been naked. Education? Please. Hard to do homework with no lights, no pencils, no paper, no books, or in the backseat of a car in winter. School is the time when you sleep and eat your only government-assisted food of the day. That was his childhood. Mine was filled with music and acting lessons in Little League. Blue's family history? Unknown. He could go back as far as his great-grandmother picking cotton in Mississippi on one side of his family. I could trace my lineage back a thousand years on all sides. Nobody in his family went to college. None of his friends did. There were no doctors and lawyers and mayors in his life story. That was inconceivable given the circumstances of his environment and history. Blue and I would argue and philosophize about the pressing social issues of the day, and every time I opined about fairness and equality and how racism was a thing of the past and cops were our public servants and not enemies, he would fire back, You don't know what you're talking about, white boy. He chipped away at my stubborn, righteous ignorance for a solid two years. In the end, Blue was right, and I was wrong. Over and over and over again, I was wrong. And the longer I walked the streets of my new neighborhood and opened myself to the stories of people who I encountered, usually after a long period of gaining their trust, the reality of his position clarified and was evidenced by everything I witnessed. His truth was overwhelmingly pervasive, and my truth had been so, 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 so ignorant and misguided. A decade and a half later, having moved on from that neighborhood, but never having truly left it, it fascinates me now to understand how ill-informed my prior life had been. Those of us who have never lived the lives of those protesting police brutality across our nation have no f***ing clue what their daily life is, what the totality of their experience is, how everything, everything, every moment of every day is defined by lack of resources, poverty, police brutality, justice systems designed to ensnare you forever, crumbling schools, inability to get employment when the job is to be decided between them and a white person, family histories of oppression and mystery because your family name and heritage has been wiped from the record, and a system where every slow chipping away of inequality is met with scorn and derision and blamed by a white upper class that is so blindingly, willfully, profoundly ignorant in their assumptions and judgments that they perpetuate this grotesque system while enjoying every advantage of it and pretending that they did it all on their own with no help. I see a lot of white people posting a lot of bullshit about Baltimore and Ferguson these days. White-owned media outlets that never bother to run stories of peaceful protests or legitimately call out corrupt institutions just love to show a bunch of black folks smashing stuff and calling them thugs. Makes for great TV. 
and further perpetuate the willful ignorance. Until you have walked the walk of that life, until you have seen over and over again friends going to jail because of unpaid fines that can't be paid because of no education and no job and cops who just get off on beating the crap and life out of a black dude, until you understand the panic and fear of a black man pulled over for a driving infraction and knowing that his unpaid child support is about to send him back to a violent hellhole of a prison, and so he runs and gets shot eight times in the back? Until you understand these things, in the words of Blue, you have no idea what you are talking about, white people. Either educate yourself and become part of the solution, or have the decency to keep your ignorant opinions to yourself. Wake up or shut up. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty heavy and it it kind of kind of hits you in the junk a little bit. Yeah. And and when we talked to him I mean like he was very thorough. He kind of hits all the points. Um it, it's cool to see somebody who it, it's not like he's, you know, a professor in this or he's studied this at great lengths. It's just something he's experienced and it's just a smart dude. Yeah, he's just a smart guy and he's experienced some stuff and has opened up some dialogue with, with people and, and kind of gained knowledge from that and uh, has, uh, you know, gracefully shared it with us uh, on the show today. Certainly. Yeah. And like, like um, he raises so many good points that like you can't help, but, but acknowledge. And that's, that's the thing that you see a lot. Like it, it's so embarrassing and ignorant, ignorant to not see that there is some, some truth to, to this and, I don't know. Yeah, we don't understand, like I said. Why don't we go ahead and get into our conversation with Dave Griffin. You're listening to Hyper Die. All right, well, earlier we mentioned that we're going to have a special guest today, and I read you a status uh, from his Facebook page um, that, I, that I encountered. Um, so this is, uh, this is Dave Griffin, uh, or Dave Griffin. He's, he's uh, a lot of you would have known. A lot of you that grew up with Adventures in Odyssey would recognize him as the voice of uh, Jimmy Barkley. So, uh, yeah, Dave, say hi. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Of course. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. Um, so I actually, I, I wanted to just talk to you because, you know, the whole, this episode, we're talking a little bit more about racism and uh, xenophobia and, and kind of uh, a little bit of recognizing it in ourselves to an extent and, and recognize it in others. Um, but you had a great story and, and could you kind of just go ahead and, uh, we, we, like I read I read your post verbatim earlier, but would you actually uh, go ahead and kind of recap it for us? Give sure. us hit the highlights. Sure. So, you know, I grew up in a a, a world of privilege. Uh, I my parents were white upper middle class. Uh, certainly, we weren't rich by any means, but we lived uh, comfortably. Poverty was never an issue for us. Uh, so that meant I grew up in suburban America and in white neighborhoods, going to white schools. Um, I, you know, I can remember the school, the elementary school I went to in Texas. Uh, there was one black kid in our school, and I believe he was there because his mom was the PE teacher. Hmm. Um, and I didn't understand those things at that time. I, I will credit my family uh, that we've never – We've always preached equality. We've always preached, you know, that a person is judged by the content of their character and not by superficial things. Um, and so, growing up in this insular world of privilege, where, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of crime, there wasn't uh, police patrolling our streets all the time. My friends weren't getting arrested. Um, a lot of the the social problems that we see were really removed from my world view, and so I grew up in a you know Republican Christian environment of uh, America. And as I got older and entered into adulthood, I had some chronic health issues that um, 
basically made me uh, legally disabled. And when you're disabled in America, you are pretty much in poverty unless uh, you have the benefit of being a trust fund kid or something. Um, and so as an adult, falling into a, a more impoverished economic situation, I moved into an economically disadvantaged neighborhood. Um, I would say it's probably, you know, still I was, I still had the luxury of having the help of my family. Uh, so I wasn't living in a, a ghetto or anything, um, but, you know, a notch above that. Um, a lot of the neighbors that I had were, had come from the ghetto. And this was their first step up the socioeconomic ladder. So it was a, it was a very different culture and environment than I grew up in. It was, um, predominantly Hispanic and black, predominantly immigrant, uh, new immigrants, recent arrivals, uh, where, uh, parents are getting here for the first time trying to, to find a life for themselves so that their kids have a better life. And, you know, if you like, if you're, if you've grown up in kind of white America, we're kind of taught that that's a scary place to be. Absolutely. Oh yeah. It's, and, and see that it's that those kinds of fears is, it was really the journey that I undertook. And I lived in this neighborhood for a decade. Mm -hmm. Um, the first two years I was there was the hardest period of adjustment for me because I still had all my white upper middle class suburban mindset you know, definitely conservative mindset. And here I was in an environment that where I was the minority voice. I was the min, you know, one of the few white boys walking around the neighborhood. And there was a, you know, I'm a pretty friendly guy. I love to have great debates and conversations. I love to learn about people. I think as an actor, that's always been, um, a fascination of mine is is where people come from, how they get there, what their lives are. I've always been more fascinated in other people's lives than my own. Sure. And through the process of, I guess, the nature of my personality, um, I began a friendship with a, a gentleman that, uh, for the sake of his privacy, I'll call him Blue. Um, and Blue had the complete opposite experience of an American life. He was black. He grew up in definitely a ghetto situation, violence, a lot of systemic poverty. Um, he, as a young kid, his mother was addicted to crack. Uh, his father never had anything to do with him. It was him and his younger sister. They were being bounced from apartment to a, you know, relative sofa to live in on the neighbor's floor to live in, in the back seat of a car. Um, his due to his mom's uh, addiction issues, uh, there wasn't money for food or clothes, and so he jumped into a life of having to steal to provide for himself and his younger sister at a very early age. And his entire experience of life, of living, everything he does, everything he touched, every element of his life that I took for granted um, was a very different story. And so early on in our our relationship, we would be philosophizing and talking about whatever the topic of the day is. To, you know, right now it's the Baltimore riots, mm -hmm. um, and he we would sit there, and these conversations would eventually turn into arguments. And I would be arguing from a position of conservative white America, upper middle class America, and. Over and over and over again, uh, he would just say, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about, white boy. And it took a long time, but bit by bit, I started to see more and more of the truth in what he was saying and more and more of the inherent prejudice that I had had uh, was being proven to me that I had prejudice. And I think that's that's a, the first part of this whole issue that we're involved in right now. Uh, a lot of people who aren't racist don't think they're prejudiced. You can be prejudiced without being racist. Sure. I think the definition yeah. for me is that racism is born out of hatred and prejudice is born out of ignorance. And, you know, I had grown up with uh, 
parents who said everybody's equal, and I thought I believed in equality. I thought I understood these things. I thought I understood the black experience, having never lived it, having only seen it on television. And you get in our culture, uh, and I'm assuming you guys come from a similar background that I did. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for the most part. Yeah, so we, we there's a lot of negative stereotypes. And it's sometimes, yeah, you might have a racist uncle or the neighbor or whatever. But for the most part, most people do not practice racism. They don't think they're racist. And but you get a narrative that inserts itself over decades as you're growing up as a child. Um, these negative stereotypes, I think one of the best examples is Reagan's welfare queen uh, arguments about why we shouldn't be supporting, you know, why we shouldn't be using tax dollars to to help mothers who just don't want to work and they want to collect a check. And it's things like that that infect our thinking processes like a cancer and for me in my interactions with blue um it really was an eye-opening journey for me to recognize hold up i i got prejudice here i really do um and you know just piece by piece really trying to look into my thinking and understanding it from his perspective and his worldview where there is a system in place that oppresses people and holds them down and harms them and that every time they ask for help the white upper class mocks it and derides it and ah oh, you're just looking for a handout and none of the none of the true decay of our system is ever addressed um and I think that's the nature of my journey is that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable saying now that, yeah, I, I, ha I had prejudice. And it's been a, a lot of work over the last 15 years of my life to really get rid of that and to really see the other side and to walk in their shoes and see what they're talking about. And over and over and over again, I was wrong. I was wrong. And the points that he made, he was right. And it's uh, it's a hard thing to distill 10 years of a dialogue <laughs> into a 20-minute conversation. But uh, yeah. it was a profound inf influence on me. It changed my politics. It changed the course of my life in terms of what, what I'm going to do with the gifts – that I have, the talents that I have, and try and use these talents to bring awareness to issues. Um, and specifically, I think, as somebody who grew up in white, middle-class America, I have a voice that they might listen to. And and that's the goal. Certainly. Fascinating. Yeah, I yeah, I, I really don't have anything I can follow up with that on. Right. Um, <laughs> I am thorough. Yeah, very thorough. Um, well, you know, do you think that uh, in some ways that prejudices and it, it, prejudice board of ignorance? Do you think in some ways it kind of goes both ways? How so? Well, from from all sides. Um, I can give you an example. Actually, this happened today. Um, I'm a delivery driver uh, and. One of my stops today uh, was in a predominantly black neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I mean, I get along with everybody there really well. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, people are generally, well, I'm a big guy. So people don't typically like, <laughs> hassle me or anything like that. Yeah. So people are, people are just like, oh, it's this, you know, jolly giant guy. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, as I was waiting, uh, you know, I checked in the order and I was waiting for the, uh, the store manager to, cut me the check, um, take back. Um, I kind of watched something happen. This, um, middle-aged white woman came in to, uh, to purchase something at the establishment. I'm trying not to be too specific just in yeah, case, you know, no, always a good idea. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, um, she came in and, uh, there was this, uh, this middle-aged black man that I've seen at this, um, so there's a middle-aged white woman walks in, middle-aged black man uh, is there. I, I've seen him there several times. Um, he's typically, uh, if not drunk, close to being drunk mm -hmm. um, when I've seen him before. Um, but 
he was like, he was in there and he was, you know, buying lottery tickets and things like that, buying some beer and just kind of chatting with everybody. Um, and some people were kind of getting annoyed with him, you know, because uh, mm-hmm. he, he gets a little loud. But uh, he, this, you know, w- white woman walks in and he walks over to her and he's like, uh, he like, you know, kind of scoots up next to her and he's like, uh, excuse me, baby, what's your phone number? <laughs> and she kind of looks at him and she kind of like cocks her eyebrows. She says, she just says, good Lord. <laughs> she just says, I'm not going to talk to you. And then she just faces forward. Yeah. And, um, after she leaves, he, he, uh, you know, he saw somebody he knew walked in and he said, you know what that white woman said? Hmm. And, uh, he specifically said, you hear what that white woman said, she said, I don't want to talk to you. And all I said was, what's your birthday? Right. And, <laughs> and, uh, this other woman kind of says, that's not at all what you said. You asked her for her phone number. You know, but like, <laughs> so, but it was just the way he said it. You hear what that white lady said. Like yeah. He said it with, he said it with some vitriol. Absolutely. And I, I gotta say, you know, one of the big things about uh, when I moved into the neighborhood that I lived in for a decade, uh, a big part of my journey was gaining the trust of that neighborhood. Um, sure. There's so to answer your first your question quickly, I would say, does prejudice exist on all sides? Of course it does, and it's not just racial prejudice. There's sexual prejudice. There's uh, prejudice against people with tattoos or long hair or hippies or you know. So I think prejudice knows no boundaries. We all have it. We all have prejudice in in ourselves. We have it's it's prejudging something based on prior information that you've received. So I think, of course, it exists. And I think this is an argument that a lot of white people use is, well, they're racist, too, against us. The difference is, is that we're the power structure in this country. And the other side has been on the receiving end of a lot of hardship at the hands of the power structure. And so a lot of the, the, the interactions that I had and the people that I knew, you know, it, t- it takes them a long time to trust a white person. Um, <laughs> mo- most of their interactions with white people are not good. Um, you know, I mean, that's bl- how I feel too, but yeah, you know, I mean, a black, you know, 14 year old tall kid who walks into a mini mart, uh, and you've got somebody working behind the counter, they're immediately thinking like, okay, is he going to steal something? Um, so I think on the other side, they've been the victim of so much – and we're not talking like a little bit. We're talking hundreds of years, generations. Every person in your family, every grandparent you have has horrible stories about um, being called racial epithets, of losing jobs, of having police um, be cruel and brutal and unfair. Sure. Um, and I think, of course, that's going to color their experience. And the the goal, I think, of any uh, person as, as you get into adulthood and you're really working with your adult mind is I think the hardest part is people never want to admit that they have prejudice. They, you know, I'm not prejudiced, but when we're truly honest with ourselves, when we really search our souls, when we search our hearts and acknowledge that these things exist, that's how you start chipping away at them. And that, there's strength in that. And that's what I want to, you know, that I wanted to encourage with that post. Uh, the reason I wrote it was that a lot of people were posting, and based on the nature of my fan base, I have a lot of very conservative uh, friends on Facebook. And it just, it, it, it was interesting to see what they were posting. Um, and it's very inflammatory. And it's, oh, look at these guys, you know smashing windows and stealing stuff and blah, 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 just a bunch of thugs. And the post that I wrote was really born out of a place of trying to say, hey, you know what? I had prejudice. I did. And I understand it now and I see it. And and that's how you start to correct it is by looking within. And it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but it's there. And, and we can't we can't think about the prejudice of the other side. We can't. We can only work on ourselves, and the better we get at it, 
the more that prejudice is going to diminish on the other side because they're going to start seeing a better relationship between our sides. And, and I think it, in our country, it is the task of white people to really step up and honestly assess what's happening and to, to assess it without uh, mercy or judgment. Just be blunt and brutal. What is it we think? What are the negative stereotypes that are in our minds? What color is our view? You know? Sure. I, I've always kind of felt that like the, the only way to properly deal with racism and, and prejudice and things like that are to confront them, like kind of bring them out in the open. But at the Absolutely. same time, you know, not try to point the finger, but kind of like yeah. say, okay, well, this is this is wrong. Let's move on and let's learn to kind of laugh about it, I guess, mm-hmm. as a thing of the past. Yeah, I think the pro- I, for me, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think we're not there yet. Sure. We're not at a place where we can laugh about it yet because what's happening is so real and so clear to the other side that we need to do more than acknowledge it in ourselves. We need to, once we acknowledge it, then put that new knowledge to good use. And the way we do that in a democracy is through uh, public dissension, protesting. We do that through voting. We do that when we're sitting on a jury. Um, And I think that we do it in conversations like this, using the ability of free media to get ideas out into the world. Um, And so I I think the hardest part right now is that most of the people that I am encountering who are so against what's happening with the Baltimore protests, it's all rooted in this narrative of they're just a bunch of thugs. And it's rooted in a prejudice that is going unrecognized in themselves. And that is the part for me that – when I guess when I got enlightened, it I, I then became aware of just how pervasive it had been in my culture and and how damaging that prejudice has been directly to these communities. And so we, we acknowledge it, and now the goal is, okay, we acknowledge it now. First, I mean, that's a huge thing to acknowledge uh, is, okay, am I, am I prejudiced? Do I have negative stereotype thinking in my head? Do I – does what I know about this group come from limited knowledge of their actual lives? And a lot of the people who are the most vehement against these protesters, um, they've never lived with them. They've never seen their lives. They have absolutely no clue what they're doing, and they're completely in denial that that lack of information is prejudice. And that's what we got to do. Once we awaken that prejudice knowledge – then we move towards action and creating a more just and equitable society uh, where these problems are problems of the past and we can maybe laugh about them someday. And I think right now it's just that the problems are so present and so brutally hard on on these minority groups. Um, and let, let's be clear that Chances are that the way this is going to change is by white America waking up and doing something about it finally instead of ignoring it. And and that requires the majority of the hard work to be done on our end. And that's not something to be afraid of. It's something to embrace. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I had a question. Um, sure. a, lot of, a lot of the arguments that I've heard, I guess I'm kind of trying to present the other side of it. Um, sure. You see – you see the media play the racial angle in different ways. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the argument can be made that they, they use the racial angle to be racist at times. And then it can also be used to say that the media is race baiting and definitely s- yeah. seeking headlines. What are, what are your thoughts on that? And do you think that plays a role in, in a lot of what happens? Or is it maybe a little bit of both? Well, let me say, okay, so as somebody who has made the study of media one of my elements of life work, um, there is absolutely race baiting, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
none of these media outlets that are covering these protests I, I just saw something great uh, somebody shared a clip of, of a, a piece I think it was on MSNBC I don't usually watch cable news anymore um, but it was that last night there was a riot in Huntington Beach by a bunch of white surfers you yeah. never heard about it you never heard about it uh, or when white people are smashing up cop cars after a sports event um, but boy, do the news cameras come out. I, I'll say this too. I was just, uh, filming the raise the minimum wage protests in Sacramento and Berkeley two weeks ago. And there was a ton of media and it got about 10 seconds of coverage on the news, 10 yeah. seconds of coverage. And here was a very peaceful protest with people of all ages, all colors, all backgrounds, working single moms. Uh, it was a wonderful, beautiful experience of getting to enact our civil, our First Amendment rights, and there was no media coverage of it. So well, our our media is designed to get ratings yeah. and to sell papers, and the way they get ratings is to keep your attention, and the way they hold your attention is with narratives, with uh, it, Watching guys smash a shop window, man, that's good footage. And certain media outlets um, definitely have a clear agenda of the narrative they're trying to present to the American people. And it is not a positive agenda. It is an agenda that is purposely divisive. It is an agenda designed to sow fear and anger, righteous anger, um, and that plays a huge part in it because the big part of our upbringing as white Americans is that most of how we viewed the lens of us, uh, the, most of how we view the world is through the lens of white owned, white controlled media. You know, nine times out of ten, when you watch a TV show, the newscaster looks like you, the lead actor in the movie looks like you. Um, you know, the black character, of course, he's the criminal that the cop is beating up, you know. Um, so I think media plays a massive role in how these issues are presented to the public. And that is one of the biggest failings of our society right now is that we are letting media – media is not reporting about the, the elements of poverty in Baltimore, crushing, crushing poverty. The drug addiction that stems from that poverty, the crime that dis stems from that poverty, uh, they only show up when there's chaos because chaos is pretty and it keeps people glued to the TV set so that exactly. then all the news commentators can judge it and tell everybody how wrong it is. Um, and so I think there's a definite role that the media plays, and, they're, and some of the media is shirking their responsibility. Other media has a blatant agenda of trying to sow more tension and discord. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's interesting. Um, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we uh, – your story about Hunt Huntington kind of reminded me of this. Um, we had a shooting here. Actually, in Albuquerque, we have some of the highest um, – the, the, some of the highest amount of police shootings in the country. Oh, uh, yeah. Per capita, we have higher than New York and L.A., um, but we we don't get a lot of attention for it. I mean, we have we've gotten some, and even like the the hacktivist group Anonymous um, had targeted APD for a while. Um, but we there was a shooting of a guy named James Boyd, and it was was that the mentally ill guy who was camping? Yeah, in the mountains, and and yeah. the guy was was so far from the police, holding a knife, had his back turned at the time of the shooting, and there was actually some uh, some protesting and and. It bordered on rioting for for a while here in Albuquerque, and I was shocked. Like when I was watching it uh, live, and you know when it was down the street from me, I was like, "This is going to be huge! Like police violence. This is gigantic! Like um, this is going to be all over the national news." And I, it didn't happen. And it, I, I I don't know which, I don't know what the reason is for that. I don't know if it's that it wasn't racially motivated. I don't know if it's just that we're a small town, no one cares, but yeah, it's, it, it's clear that they pick and choose what they cover. And like you said, it's very agenda driven at times. And, and I will say that that that's a big part of it is, is the stories that the editorial staff and the people who are actually controlling the media choose to tell and to not tell. 
Um, that that particular uh, shooting, killing, let's call it what it was. Um, yeah. Was it was a different category there? It's police not doing their job right with citizens who are suffering from mental illnesses. And that's that's a big part of this whole problem we're seeing. You know, it's not just black kids and men that are getting shot. It's, you know, in Anaheim, there was a – or Fullerton there, in California, there's a, a guy, mentally ill, schizophrenic, beaten to death. Um, and happened, I think, also in Bakersfield. So we're seeing a culture of police actions that are not healthy for our society. And yeah, what are the stories that are getting played to the media, to the audiences around the world? And um, our media is is purposely divisive right now, and they're doing it on purpose. Uh, there's a particular quote-unquote news outlet uh, that I could cite as being the most egregious example of this, um, but it, it's it's there, and and that's what. It, See, because then the problem is, is once the protests turn violent, and a lot of the reason they turn violent is because police are approaching these protests with the intent that they're going to turn violent. So they're bringing out their riot gear, their their shields, uh, their tanks. When I covered the protests in Berkeley two weeks ago, the police were on bicycles and they were a friend to the protesters and treated the protesters with respect and made sure everything was handled orderly. They did a fantastic job in Sacramento and Berkeley. When you have police that are set, ready, itching for something to go down, then something's going to go down. And then suddenly that's when the news shows up. And now the message of the protest is getting hijacked by prejudicial agendas to – diminish all the power of what it is they're talking about and now you have a bunch of righteous self-righteous white people saying ah look at those thugs and man that if you light the fuse on a stick of dynamite it's gonna blow up at some point (laughs) well where do you think that um like what do you think the i I guess the potential solutions are like how can we really i I guess move beyond this as as a as a society as a culture because you know there is there uh, a lot of prejudice i think stems from uh i i almost want to say like overly diverse cultures like there's not a lot of cultural blending mm-hmm. you know you have like you have separate like black culture hispanic culture white culture and they're sure. they're very separate and there's not really any sharing on either end from anybody sure sure i think <clears throat> i think Part of the reason that there are divisions in our culture is that it's only been very recently that legally some of these barriers have been broken. Um, And so where segregation was – it was the law uh, for my parents' and grandparents' generation, um, some of those barriers have been broken, and that's a a factor of time. Um, There's a lot of tension between the Hispanic and black communities in the area that I lived in. Um, and that's something that's, it, it, it blends over time. I always kind of use the phrase someday when we're all gray, you know, when we've all intermarried 200 years from now and, uh, a lot of those divisions will be less prominent. Um, but that, I'm sorry, the, the question you asked again was, I just lost my thread of thought. Uh, is how do we, how do we solve it? Yeah. Um, so I think I think the way we solve it is is right here today. What we're doing, we're talking about it. We're talking about it intelligently. We're talking about it. We're taking passion out of it and anger and fear out of the conversation. And we're having this conversation of honesty. That that is the first step. I think the first steps. It's you know one of the things I really have been feeling a lot over the last few years is a sense of political powerlessness. I think a lot of America feels that way. And I really started looking in the mirror and I realized like it's because I'm waiting for somebody to show up and fix things. And the person who needs to show up and fix things is me and you. And we, we solve these problems when we honestly look within ourselves 
and we try to educate our minds. That's, that's the first barrier to break. That's the first problem to solve. Once we recognize our <laughs> own shortcomings or errors in thinking, now then we're able to say, okay, I'm aware of this problem. I see it exists. Now I can create action to help solve this problem. Sometimes that action is going to be voting for a candidate that's trying to push through an issue that relates to this problem. Um, it might be getting involved in your local politics. I think that's a big problem that millennials have right now is that we're so disconnected. You know, How many times have you ever gone to a city council meeting, even though they're open to the public? Um, so we have to get active and involved. Covering these minimum wage protests has been exciting because I'm seeing a lot of people who have never gotten engaged or, or made any positive action. They're doing it for the first time, and they're finding themselves really empowered and feeling a real sense of satisfaction that, that we're moving the needle. And so I think it, it starts with us, how we think, how we feel, and then we move that. Once we change that, now it's about action and how can we get involved. And for all the problems of our political system right now, we still are based on democratic principles. And I believe we can correct these things. I believe these problems can be solved. I, I don't think it's something that is an impossibility. It just requires us to acknowledge that the problems do indeed exist and then being willing to take action and and work together. And I think that in the long run, it's, it's how we've achieved every great advancement of our society since the dawn of time. And we can do it again. We can we can do it. And it just I think it really requires a lot of people who are turning a blind eye to these things to to look in the mirror and open those blind eyes and don't be afraid of it. It's it's so freeing and liberating when you do um, that then then the, the very next thing that follows after that is, all right, OK, I'm liberated. I'm free. Now I want to act on this. And then the change occurs. Yeah, it's and it's funny that you mentioned that like that that that's a solution. A lot of people, their solution it seems is to not even acknowledge race exists, and you find people that that just refuse to acknowledge that it's a thing. And I personally, I think that's just as, it's equally damaging and embarrassing a lot of times. I actually uh, recently with a coworker, I was just kind of hanging out after work at his house, and uh, you know, a friend of his was there. And they were describing somebody that comes by and uh, picks stuff up on the side of the road to scrap. And they, they were for, he's like, yeah, it's this older black guy. He's like, oh man, I think I just showed my racism again or something like that. Right. But, 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 uh, and I, I kind of thought about it. I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't think necessarily acknowledging that he's black is necessarily prejudiced. Mm-mm. Because there is a difference, and absolutely, like, and just like it's, I think it kind of has to go with like you live in this predominantly white neighborhood, and you have you know many like not as many black neighbors. So since he's the odd man out, he would be described as sure. you know that black guy, like that older black guy, or just like if you went into his neighborhood, they would refer you to that as refer to you as that young white guy. I was the white boy, you know, I mean, so it's, yeah, I mean, my, my buddy blue that we're talking about, you know, it was, uh, it was always my white, you know, what's up white boy. Um, so I, I don't think that's necessarily racism. I, racism is, is hatred. It's prejudice turned into hatred and it is an obstinacy of, of thinking and action. And I, I think, I don't think racism is the problem. I think prejudice is the problem, and we all do have it. And pr- what the problem is, we we sort of equate racism with prejudice because the issue we're talking about is racial prejudice. And I think that when your friend said something like that, probably what he's he's keying in on is that prejudice. Um, and that no, that's not racism, but. You know, yeah, there is some prejudice there, and at least he's acknowledging it. And and I think, you know, when I hear stories like that, I think, okay, that's a little moment where there's a little spark of honesty, and that's a good thing. And now let's let's get some oxygen to it and turn it into a flame of knowledge. 
and that that we slowly erode away the prejudices that we have, but we have to first acknowledge them. And that's where I would tip my hat to you, to the guy you're talking about. At least he's acknowledging it, you know. And that's a, that's a huge that's a victory because so many people right now aren't acknowledging their prejudice, and uh, it's it's why it's why we're having this conversation. Well, Dave, we want to thank you for your time today. Um, it was really great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for uh, opening the lines of dialogue about uh, these issues. I think what you're doing is a great thing, and we need to continue it. And uh, I just want to tell people out there who are listening, you know, if I can examine my own prejudice and admit it and confront it and educate myself and change it, uh, that if I can do that, everybody can. And I encourage you all to discover what prejudice you have and, and let's, let's stamp it out and let's get this world better. Definitely. Definitely. Well, um, bef- I guess before we uh, end the show for the day, are there, uh, are there any particular projects you're working on or anything like that that you want to promote? Uh, Sure. Uh, there's there's a work in progress right now that I'm working on with uh, the Blimey Cow Ceiling Fan team. Uh, that's mm. a, a series of audio comedy sketches uh, that we're hoping to get out soon um, with the goal of eventually maybe building up enough of an audience that I can finally crowdsource uh, an, an audio drama I've been wanting to do for many, many years called Edwin and the Orbs. Um I'm working on a documentary right now about uh, raising the minimum wage and the people who are are fighting for that and uh, doing a a bunch of little different things. And as soon as I've got something that uh, I can direct people to, I will let you guys know, and hopefully your audience will enjoy it. Yeah. Do you have like Certainly. an online presence or website, anything like that? Uh, at the moment, my website's down. Uh, but if people are interested in contacting me, you're welcome to hit me up on Facebook, Jave, J-A-V-E, Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N. Uh, and I'm, I try to be very good about getting back to people when they send me messages and I always love interacting with fans and uh, people who are curious. So feel free to, to stop by and say hi. Cool. Well, hey, thanks so much for your time. Yes, absolutely. Thank you you very much for having me. It was an honor. Well, thanks again to Dave Griffin for that excellent conversation. It was really, really great. Uh, Really great things were said, some really great things to think about. Um, It's definitely made me reconsider my own prejudices and things like that. I don't know about you, Huggins. You have to. um, Yeah, it it, it was really like, I, I don't know, a lot of it was very convicting. Um which, you know, it's, that's always a good thing, I think, to be convicted a little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's about all the time we have for this week. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Hype or Die. Remember to check us out online. Um, uh, remember to check us out on Twitter. It's at Hype or Die Show. Um, if you have comments, uh, questions, things like that, you can leave them at rootdoctormedia.com slash hype or die. You can also tweet to us or you can email us at hypeordiepodcast at gmail.com. And by all means, don't be afraid to share our podcast link with everyone you know. Don't be afraid of being annoying. We need it. Yeah, we, we would definitely love for you to share it with your friends, um, and just like we're sharing it with you. And we would love to hear what you have to say. Uh, your feedback helps us make a better show. But until next week, thanks so much for listening to Hyper Die. I'm Mark Jones. I'm Huggins. And uh, we're out of here.